Look, everything you look at and you think that this is a problem is actually an opportunity. So you come to Egypt and you say, well, we don't have a lot of people using credit card. Well, that's wonderful. That's a huge opportunity for actually selling fintech solutions like mobile wallets and other digital solutions that can get people to pay and buy for things in a very easy way that does not include using credit card. Immigrating to study in the U.S. can be an overwhelming experience. Between cultural challenges and surprising opportunities, the possibilities are just unlimited. This is Unlimited by the MIT Arab Alumni Association, the show where we interview MIT alumni to explore their motivations, culture shocks, best moments, and reflections on their journeys. And I'm Omar Obaya, MIT Class 2018, hosting this season. Our guest today has more degrees than I can keep track of. He did a bachelor's in engineering at the American University in Cairo, AUC, graduating in 1995. In the same year, he started an MBA, also in AUC, and graduated in 1997. He then did a master's in MIT in city planning, graduating in 1999. For the following five years, he worked as a consultant in McKinsey, and then for a short project at the World Bank. He then went back to MIT, but this time for a PhD in international economic development. A few years later, our guest decided to go back to his hometown, Cairo. Today, he's the director of the AUC Venture Lab, and he's a co-founder, angel investor, or board member of several fast-growing startups in fintech, microfinance, and logistics. In 2012, he was selected as a young global leader by the World Economic Forum. Our guest today is Dr. Ayman Smail. Dr. Ayman, ahlan bik. Ahlan bik, ya Omar. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. So usually our show is divided into three parts. We usually start with discussing your motivation of applying to MIT and traveling to the US. And then we ask you about your time on campus. And finally, we go on some reflections about your journey. So um, to start off, growing up, have you always planned to travel abroad or was it something that you decided on in college? So uh, growing up, I always thought about actually uh, traveling uh, abroad and maybe doing graduate studies. Uh, my parents are academics and they both had the opportunity to live abroad and to travel to different parts of the world and to study there. And I always saw this as something that I uh, uh, kind of uh, had as part of my vision or dream after graduation. So yes, it was there. Uh, but over time, of course, what happens and where do you go and what do you study and what kind of life do you have, that's, that's usually what changes with, uh, with reality. What's one thing that changed from that initial plan? Um, I think initially I thought um, that I would uh, spend most of my life in an academic track. Uh, but when I first came, I saw many of my friends and colleagues um, looking at different professional opportunities in the U.S. and I felt that I wanted to get this kind of experience. Uh, so very quickly I started looking at what are the most interesting, competitive and uh, areas that can give me a broad experience and that's when I ended up in, in consulting. So uh, I came to basically do my master's PhD, go back and practice and teach, uh, become an academic. But I ended up spending uh, probably close to eight to ten years uh, working in different types of consulting projects um, uh, in the U.S. And that, that completely changed my mindset and uh, how I thought 
about my career. And just one thing that I would advise everybody who would travel, it's great to go and get a degree from another country and live there a little bit, but you must, must have a professional experience in addition to that degree. It completely changes your uh, mindset and the way you think about uh, what you want to do with your life. So why do you recommend that international students work before going back to their home countries? Are you referring to the importance of hands-on experience or what are you referring to here exactly? No, I'm, I, I'm basically advising people to actually spend time working, whether before or after, uh, in other countries. So let's say you're, you're from whichever part of the world and you go to the US, you do your master's degree. Don't just go back right after that. Spend some time, work in a company, work in a startup. You're trying to say that you grow more this way. You, you get more of the different culture, right? You get, you get to see a different side of the culture. Uh, what you would see whenever you go to another country, to a university, universities are very protected spaces. Uh, when you go there, it's, uh, things are designed to make the experience encouraging and easy and accessible. But once you start working in a company with other people from so many different backgrounds, you get to see a lot more of what happens in that country, the real culture, the real uh, business uh, uh, practices, uh, challenges. Um, you work with different teams. It, it's a completely different environment that gets you, gets you outside of the sheltered university uh, space that we create. As a recent grad, I totally approve this message. So, Ayman, you completed a bachelor's degree in engineering, then you did an MBA in AUC. Afterwards, you returned to MIT for another engineering degree. Why did you go for another engineering degree? Um, when I got my MBA, and that was a long time ago, uh, especially in Egypt, it was not perceived in the same way that you would do it right now. So I did it pre-experience, uh, meaning that I had not had a long, uh, a long working professional experience before doing that, and probably that was a mistake. Uh, and it was also mostly in, in, in an Egyptian context, uh, and I wanted to learn more about business, uh, before even getting into the the kind of the academic PhD track that I wanted to get into. But it kind of changed my mindset uh, about looking for opportunities and jobs and what I want to do in my career. But that change, it took probably several years until it, uh, I would say, it matured and translated into action. Uh, when I came to MIT, my objective was basically doing a PhD and uh, getting into a master's program is a good entry point to actually uh, getting into a good PhD because you get to know the faculty. Uh, it's much easier to get into your master's program uh, first. Um, you get to transition to that university and so on. So that was my plan, basically. Let me get in there. It's a better entry point um, and prepare for the PhD, which is pretty much what happened afterwards. But did you want to do a PhD in economics or in engineering? Uh, I wanted a PhD in the same field that I was in, which was uh, basically uh, city planning, uh, focusing on information systems. I was actually, that's what I was doing. I was focusing on uh, geographic information systems. Uh, and that's what I wanted to do, actually. And I applied on it and I got into that program. Uh, but then one semester after, uh, being in the PhD program, I did not. I, I did not feel that I was happy. 
so many different reasons, but I actually dropped out of that program, went and worked for five years, and then came back and changed into another field. So that's why I always say that uh, uh, it's good to have uh, a lot more experience, uh, practical experience, know what you want before getting into kind of that uh, pre-prescribed path of let me go through the degrees one after the other until I get to the last one and then start thinking about my life. Um, reality doesn't work this way. So you said you weren't happy in your engineering PhD program. In what ways do economics and engineering differ? So let me, let me correct uh, part of that. Uh, I was not happy in my PhD, not because it was in engineering or in a technical field. I was not happy because I don't think at that point in time I had the maturity to figure out what I wanted to do with that program. Uh, and I was just moving from one to the other. You know, when, you're, when, you, when you can get into a great program at PhD, you cannot say no to it. Uh, but at some point you realize that you don't really know what you want. Um, so that's when I took a very tough decision to actually drop out uh, and then go and work. Uh, and that's what helped me explore a very different types and different angles uh, of what's happening out there in the industry. When I came back, I knew that I wanted to learn something about economic development. Uh, I wanted to learn something about why different countries do better uh, and others do worse. Uh, I wanted to learn something that I can actually, that would be practical for uh, Egypt and the Middle East. So that took me in a very different path. Uh, and I had the uh, I was lucky enough that I can do that kind of program also at MIT and uh, in, a, in the same department. So it was an easy transition for me. So it's not about which field you like. It's about what do you want to do with the degree that you are getting and um, uh, making sure that you understand what it means, understand the jobs that you can get with it, you understand the kinds of the kind of work that you can do uh, with it in practice. So that, that, that's the most important thing. Now, how is it different between um, you, you calling them engineers and economists or engineering and economics? Well, um, most of the most of what I was focusing on on the engineering side was more about how. How do you do something? How do you solve a problem? How do you build something? How it it was more oriented towards implementation. Um, the economic development side, which is not exactly economics, because it's looking at how do countries develop uh, from an economic side, but also from other multiple dimensions. Um, there was more of asking why. Why is this happening? Why are those countries like this? Why is this policy work and this doesn't work? So different kinds of questions um, and different ways of thinking. At the end of the day, if you um, <clears throat> If you're using the mindset that you had from your engineering, your engineering education, uh, structured thinking, uh, quantitative thinking, problem solving, it will serve you very well. But you need to add to your toolkit the why question. I think that's a question that we don't ask much when you're working in a technical field, and it's um, it's probably the most interesting question to ask. So, what's one advice you would give a current MIT student? Um, it's a lot about asking that why question, uh, because you get into a program, you get into a specific technical side of it, whether in econ or engineering or pretty much any other field. Um, and I think the, the faculty and the courses that challenge you most are the ones that tell you, okay, so now you know that body of knowledge, 
uh, you know how to apply it. You need to ask a lot of whys. Um, whenever you ask that question, it gets you into really controversies, digging deeper, challenging lots of premises that you have. So uh, it's a it's a different way of thinking. And I think that's a very important part, part that I would advise everybody to uh, just keep asking that question. Sometimes you get annoying for your faculty, but well, it's, it's a part of the fun. What about the corporate world? I mean, some companies would sort out the business people from the engineers and let business people do the decision making and ask engineers to focus on execution. And while I don't generalize, I've heard this complaint from a lot of friends, really. I think companies that um, are very siloed, uh, where you start putting people in buckets, uh, are probably companies that are boring and probably not going to be very successful. And honestly, I don't think they're worth the time of any MIT graduate to work at. So uh, the companies that are doing interesting work are usually multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary. Uh, you have people from technology, from business, from social sciences, from other, from so many different dimensions working together. Uh, yes, at some point, everybody needs to own their space. And at some point, everybody needs to worry about um, a specific part of the business. But when you keep people in silos uh, and when you design a culture or organization that operates in silos, it's usually not very innovative uh, and also uh, probably not going to go very far. It's time now for our rapid fire questions round regarding life at MIT. So during your time at MIT, where did you live? I lived in different locations. I think um, out of the seven or eight years that I lived in, in, in Cambridge, I probably stayed in six or seven locations. Uh, first thing was uh, one of the dorms. Uh, I think it was called Edgerton. I don't know if it's still there or not. Yeah. What I remember yeah, is there. that still there. Um, I had a view of the MIT nuclear reactor out of my window. So that's something that I remember very well. Uh, and then after that, I moved around Boston and so many different uh, situations but when i came back for my phd later on i actually decided to buy my own place it was a probably crazy decision at the time i still have it till now uh, it's a beautiful small condo and uh, close to central square um, probably one of the best decisions that i did so if you're coming to mit for a phd and spending a lot of time look for opportunities like these okay yeah um the best place to eat near campus um, well, we don't have many good places. I tried the trucks, I tried many places, and I didn't like many of them. The only thing I remember is that there was a Moroccan guy who was doing probably the best maklouba in the student center. And I used to come just for that maklouba. I didn't try anything else. Uh, I don't think he's there anymore, but uh, I still remember his food. Fantastic food. Favorite activity outside academics? Um... Interesting enough, there was a, a group of uh, uh, Arabs who are um, singing classical Arabic music uh, in Boston. Uh, they became my best friends, um, Nabil and uh, Randa and Hani and uh, many others. Uh, and I used to spend uh, lots of hours with them singing old classical Arabic music. And uh, 
uh, and enjoying that. And I think we performed actually several times in Boston. I think they still play the music and they still meet once a week. So uh, fantastic opportunity. Um, favorite place on or near campus? Um, walking by the Charles River, by far. Yeah. Favorite time of the year in MIT? Um, I like the early fall, uh, late summer, early fall. Uh, once the humidity starts going uh, disappearing and before before the winter comes in, beautiful time to uh, walk and enjoy the nature around campus and the foliage. It's uh, it's just amazing. Favorite non-residential building in MIT? Um, the Stata building, Frank Gehry's. Uh, beautiful building, always makes me question function versus looks. Is it really <laughs> functional? But it's a building that actually works. You can never, you can never forget walking, uh, walking next. So I used to call it. Uh, it's the Alice in Wonderland building. Um, favorite place to work outside lab. Uh, Andala Cafe in uh, Central Square. I pretty much wrote my PhD dissertation there. I used to go when they open in the morning, like eight o'clock, and uh, they close at eleven. By let they let me stay until eleven thirty or midnight. So I pretty much spent the whole year writing there, and I tried every single item in the menu. Uh, wow. So, fantastic place you should go and uh, spend some time there. So now we're done with questions about your time on campus, and now let's move to reflections on your journey. You finished your PhD in two thousand nine. Were you thinking about entrepreneurship at all then? Not at all. I mean, um, uh, when I came back to do my PhD, I, um, I decided to explore the uh, international development side. So I was more interested in this World Bank uh, path. I did a project for the World Bank. It was actually in Egypt, uh, looking at the investment climate, enjoyed it. Uh, and then I came back, took some courses. And actually, after I finished my coursework, I started going back to doing consulting. And in the same time, uh, while... Uh, writing my thesis. So, um, so 2006, 7, 8, 9, 2010, all of that time, I was actually doing very interesting consulting projects in addition to working on my uh, research. Uh, I worked for probably a couple of years doing different projects with the New York Times, uh, different companies, uh, in addition to what I did in McKinsey or after that. So uh, that was my focus, and uh, I always thought about building a consulting company, a professional development uh, consulting company. Entrepreneurship came actually, uh, I would say it was a matter of serendipity, and it probably has to do with when I started uh, moving back to Egypt, a uh, very interesting situation, but that's when I got into the whole entrepreneurship uh, space. But that was not on my mind earlier by any chance. So how did this transition happen? Um most of the important big things in my life happened, I would say, by chance. Uh, people call it serendipity. So um, I was planning to spend some time and explore what things look like in Egypt, see what are the opportunities. I was spending some time also with my family. And then uh, you got a whole revolution in Egypt and the region. Uh, so I decided to spend more time. Part of it is uh, to be with my family in those times. And part of it is actually to try and be part of that historic time with all the good, bad, ugly, and crazy things that happened uh, at that point in time. So I spent some time there. Uh, I wanted to do consulting, but there was very little consulting at that time and place. 
So uh, started exploring teaching at AUC, at the American University in Cairo, and that's when I started my career there. And um, uh, I was basically mandated to look at expanding the entrepreneurship space. Uh, and that's the time when I started focusing uh, on understanding entrepreneurship ecosystems and startups. Of course, it helps when you're coming from MIT because that's one of the top places in the world where you get startups uh, coming or um, uh, originating. So I learned a lot from there. Uh, but we did not have much of an entrepreneurship ecosystem in Egypt, at least the tech-enabled type of uh, uh, venture capital-backed type of entrepreneurship ecosystem. So started working on this at AUC, building it, collaborating with pretty much everybody who was doing it uh, in Egypt. Um, and um, suddenly I became completely immersed in that space, uh, working with entrepreneurs, helping build companies, helping build support organizations, work on policy issues, um, and so on. So that was, that was um, uh, my transition to that space. And it was honestly a fantastic transition. I mean, I... I really enjoyed it, and I still enjoy every single moment of my work there. So you had three transitions in the same time. You had just relocated to Egypt, you just switched from consulting to entrepreneurship, and you joined a university as faculty. Was it easy to have three transitions at the same time? Um, it's... yeah. Look, when you when when you move from one place to another, it's a, it's a good opportunity to to change things and to get into something interesting. Uh, for me, Egypt at that point was a new place, um, new situation, uh, new pretty much actually new career. Uh, the whole country was changing in ways. Some of them were great, some of them were not so great, uh, and just being part of that is. Uh, I would say it's a transformative experience. Um, you start thinking about what do you want to do, where do you want to play in that space, uh, whether it's uh, the country or the context. Um, what do you have to offer? Uh, what do you care most about? So you start asking those kinds of existential questions. Of course, they're not they're questions that you will never find a definitive answer to, but it's it's something that you continue to evolve. So uh, what did I do at that point? Um, well, at AUC, I started working with entrepreneurs. And when you work with entrepreneurs, you learn a lot. You really, really learn a lot. You start building um, organizations, so building AUC Venture Lab. And before that, I built a program on entrepreneurship. And then after that, introducing uh, majors and minors. And then um, I actually joined several companies as um, board member, co-investor, co-founder, whatever you want to call it. So the experience was actually pretty transformative, uh, and it still is. So um, if you are doing that much change at the same time, yeah, it's 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 tough. Today, things I would say are more settled, uh, but I'm always having the itch that, uh, okay, do you do you want to do you want to settle there or do you want to try something another something very different, new. Uh, whether uh, in the type of work or in the place and so on. So I'm always questioning that, but, uh, but also enjoying what I'm doing. So in general, um, what, what is a good sign that you need to make a transition? I don't think there's a good time for it, Homer. I think um, uh, it depends on, I mean, a lot of these big transitions happen in a very, um, a serendipitous way it's just by chance uh, if you feel that you're 
not growing or you're not enjoying or you're not doing something good or you're not having um, the best experience, then it's time to do that. If you're enjoying, if you're learning, if you're growing, if you're benefiting, if, if you have that feeling of excitement, then keep doing what you're doing. So I think it's not about the time. It's about um, a state of mind. That makes sense. So now you're a co-founder, angel investor, and a board member of several startups. In what ways did your engineering education help you? Look, being an engineer is something that sticks with you all the time. You are basically trained to solve problems, uh, structure problems, think in a good quantitative way, and those are skills that stay with you regardless of what you do. Um, so you end up in finance, you end up in economics, you end up in engineering, you end up in management in general. It's the same mindset. So there's some technicalities that you're going to drop from one career to the other, but the way of thinking is going to remain with you. And that, that that's, a, that's a great uh, education. So I would tell people, regardless of what job you're going to do, um, an undergraduate engineering education is a fantastic learning experience. So it doesn't matter what kind of engineering you study and whether you're going to practice it afterwards or not. Uh, it's just a good education to have. Well, that's a great advice for high schoolers, and I'm sure that's going to be great news to a lot of engineers like me as well. So um, a lot of our audience are ambitious Arabs who live in the West, but they would be still interested in starting ventures in the Middle East. As someone who works with a lot of startups in the Middle East, what do you think is the main difference between entrepreneurship in the U.S. and entrepreneurship in the Middle East? Look, if you are, if you want to do something interesting in entrepreneurship, it's about disrupting something that already exists. So if you're in the U.S., look at what's out there and try to do something different. If you're in Egypt or in Saudi or Dubai or Morocco or whatever, it's pretty much the same thing. The only difference is that the context is very different. So uh, in the Middle East, for example, and actually many parts of the world, we're having a lot of digital transformation happening right now. So things that people used to do in a very traditional way, now because of connectivity, different uh, experiences, different technology, people are doing them in a digital way. Simple things, uh, buying things, lending, your financial experience, your healthcare experience, your uh, entertainment experience, it's happening that way. Uh, many of these things already uh, exist in developed markets, but we're developing them right now in Egypt and in the MENA region and in developed emerging markets in general. So starting a business around that kind of experience is fantastic. You're transforming people's healthcare experience. You're transforming people's financial services experience. You're transforming people's mobility, logistics, transportation experience, and so on. <clears throat> so if you want to come back to the region, um, look for things that would affect people's lives, improve them, whether improve access, improve uh, uh, affordability, improve quality of the service, and try to introduce products and services around that. That's, that's the kind of entrepreneurship that's taking place right now. And a lot of money and effort is getting into that. And it also has a lot of impact. Some of these applications, and I'm, I don't mean apps, I mean uh, applications of technology, may already be there in the U.S. So they're no longer in the entrepreneurship realm. So if you're in the U.S. and thinking about entrepreneurship, you might think about 
ديب تك اي اي روبوتكس نانوتك things that are a little bit more about taking new science and implementing it into the market. So those are two different types of entrepreneurship and they look different and the kind of business building experience you have is also very different. So if you're going to become an entrepreneur in the US, look for what's the latest cutting edge knowledge and science and try to build something around it. If you want to be an entrepreneur in emerging markets, look at uh, a service or product that is not being done in a good way that affects the lives of a lot of people. So it's large, it's massive, and go and transform the human experience around it. Um, huge opportunity on either side of the ocean, but very different approach and way of thinking about it. So what is the most challenging part about entrepreneurship in the Middle East? For instance, do you think that the fact that consumers are not as familiar with technology or even credit cards, for instance, presents a challenge for startups in the Middle East today? Look, everything you look at and you think that this is a problem is actually an opportunity. So you come to Egypt and you say, well, we don't have a lot of people using credit card. Well, that's wonderful. That's a huge opportunity for actually selling fintech solutions like mobile wallets and other digital solutions that can get people to pay and buy for things in a very easy way that does not include using credit card. So there's a huge opportunity in emerging markets for leapfrogging generations of work that, uh, uh, or generations of products that are actually taking place, that have taken place in the US or in developed markets. So if you want to go there, you have to start thinking about every single problem that you see as an opportunity. The challenges usually have to do with the speed of implementation. So some things you can do in a month in the US, you might spend two, three, six months doing in, in, in Egypt, for example. Uh, and that's part of just dealing with that environment. So um, you will find that you're moving a little bit slower on some dimensions. But what you think are problems are not actually the problems. They're usually the opportunities that you can transform spaces and make actually make a lot of wealth around it. So let's take acquiring talent as an example. Can you elaborate on why hiring takes more time in the Middle East? Um, I mean, you take everything. Um, hiring people, that's mm. a huge part. Uh, it takes a lot longer to identify talent and go through the, the right processes. Um, sometimes cutting deals with businesses, the B2B transactions, they take a lot longer compared to when you can cut a deal with a company in the US. So if it's going to take you a month, it might take you here three or six. It's going to take you six months, it might take you a year or more. So these are these are the things that actually take longer. And those are the challenges. Those are very different kinds of challenges. Uh, they're more about institutional challenges uh, rather than anything else. So let's take acquiring talent as an example. Can you elaborate on why hiring takes more time in the Middle East? So. Uh, if you are trying to hire people in the US, you're probably going to look at some of the recruitment websites or LinkedIn, and the process itself might to recruit might take uh, a lot less. If you're hiring in Egypt, you will probably, now you see more people at LinkedIn, but hiring online is very nascent. So there are a couple of companies, Wazaf and Forasna, that are actually launched online uh, job 
portals and websites. Those are new and they're trying to get into the market and tell people uh, rather than hiring through word of mouth um, or social traditional social media, you can actually post your jobs, you can actually get a nice pipeline, you can interview it in a professional way and screen it and so on. So you're starting to see these things changing. They were not like this two, three, five years ago. Uh, I think I remember when I was growing up, if you want to look for a job, you would go and download Al-Ahram, the newspaper, and look in the classified ads for jobs. It was the same, by the way, in the US. Uh, But they moved to websites, recruitment websites, uh, LinkedIn, and similar platforms probably a couple of decades before Egypt or the region in general. So now we're catching up on, on these things. And that's what I mean by digital transformation. You're starting to see many things that uh, you're doing uh, or you're changing the way that you're doing, and that's an opportunity. So these were the challenges. What are the top factors for startup success in the Middle East? Um, First thing is um, the team and the people you pick to work with you. Um, You are as successful as the people who are going to work with you. So you need to be very careful and have really fantastic people working with you. Uh, second thing, um, whenever, especially in a place like Egypt, whenever you're getting into an opportunity, it's going to be hard and you're going to work for a long time, uh, many years on it. So you might as well make sure that it's worthy of, uh, you're solving a problem that's worthy of solving. You're getting into a market that's big enough. So having the vision early enough that says, this is an area that is big and interesting and I can do something to transform it. And if I do that, it's going to be big. So having the vision of picking a place that is big is very important. Uh, Third thing is about persistence. Um, You're going to be falling and falling 100 times. um, And having that persistence is extremely important, especially in a challenging environment. Um, I mean, um, it's, it's, it's a tough walk when you are starting a business in a place like Egypt or in developing emerging markets in general. So you have to have that persistence and stamina Uh, with you all the time and a lot of optimism as well that serves you well i'm pretty sure a lot of people are taking notes right now now last but not least the question we always end with what do you miss the most about mit um lots of um the the i would say the, the the intellectual capital that you would find there so whenever you whenever you're walking there, you're gonna bump into interesting people, thinking about interesting problems, working on amazing projects, and just having those discussions day day in day out, um, it's just amazing. You get to learn so much about so many things, um, and it's also um, it adds a little bit or a lot of humility, uh, knowing that you're within all of those people doing all those amazing things. So um, having that intellectual capital and the intellectual challenge in your work, um, that's the one thing that, uh, that I miss big time about being there. Dr. Ayman, thank you so much for joining us today in the third season of Unlimited. I loved hearing your insights about immigration, entrepreneurship, and academia. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Omar. It's a pleasure to be with you and... Uh, I hope to see you and to uh, be on campus at MIT sometime soon. Thank you, Omar. Of course. To all our audience listening, if you like this episode, make sure to share it with your friends. And for more stories, don't forget to subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. 
next episode is going to be a special episode in Arabic. Dr. Tariq Raha speaks about his journey from Egypt to the U.S. He gives a lot of reflections about his time in academia, life advice for immigrants, and insights about differences in living in different countries. Stay tuned.